Welcome again to the Milt Rosenberg podcast. And yes, it is indeed Milt Rosenberg with a very old friend who's been here before. And we have much to talk about with Charles Lipson. First, one might make clear for those few who need enlightenment who Charles Lipson is. Who are you, Charles Lipson? I'm a Mississippi boy who... Uh, You're a Jewish Mississippi boy. Jewish Mississippi boy. Uh, I thought that was the heart of American Judaism was uh, rural Mississippi. And then I went east to school, and then I came to the promised land of Chicago to teach at the University of Chicago many years ago. So you and I, Milt, are not only old friends, but old colleagues for many years. You are political science. I am social psychology. But we have a shared interest in international politics. We do indeed. And there's been an awful lot of international national politics uh, in the last week or two. Indeed, I should make clear what the date is. This is the 14th of January, and uh, we are a few days behind the uh, dreadful, stirring, strange events in Paris and environs, and uh, the game goes on, and it is a strange game, in some ways a scary game, possibly inspiring. Are you at all inspired, for example, by the a sellout of the three million copies of Charlie that were uh, published today. I was um, struck positively by the fact that they were able to get the journal out, by the fact that it is... They, they did it at Liberation, which is for the printing presses and so on. Right. And that they the cover seems to be uh, a kind of heartbreaking uh, cover uh, that all of Paris is lined up uh, to get it. I think that, that that's very important. Decode, if you would, uh, that cover. It's a cartoon. There are certain ambiguities in that cartoon. This is a representation of Muhammad, and there's a tear flowing from his left eye, and he's holding uh, a sign, Je suis Charlie, and above it says what? It says, all is forgiven. In all is forgiven. And I By th- whom? To, to whom? I think he is saying that he forgives, to, uh, that he forgives um, the... It's hard to know. It's that he forgives Charlie for making these things. Maybe he for. I don't know if it is intended to say that he uh, forgives uh, the terrorists. I can't believe that they would be saying that. Uh, but uh, there has been uh, a claim of responsibility by Al Qaeda. There have been uh, radical uh, imams that have now spoken out against the new cover. I will say one more thing about it, Milt. All the uh, um, Je suis Charlie uh, things, you did not see uh, many Je suis Juif, I am Jewish. And yet we know. One young Muslim woman uh, had such a sign in the, uh, in the vast entourage who swept down the Champs-Élysées. Absolutely. And uh, we know that most of the people who were saved in that supermarket were saved by a young Muslim man who worked there. I don't want to paint... And one of the customers killed was Muslim, apparently. Right. And one of the uh, policemen killed and so forth. But the, the fact is that attack was made on those people because and solely because they were Jewish. 
There had been a week or two before uh, a rape in which the people uh, came in and said, we're here to rape. These were ex- uh, Muslim extremists. We're here to rape a Jewish woman. So in other words, there's open anti-Semitism, which needs to be confronted alongside the issue of radical Islam within France and within Europe itself. If you believe in the game of public opinion polling, as one half does and half doesn't, and politicians follow them closely, even sometimes manipulate them cynically, but the rise and fall of anti-Semitism has been tracked now for as long as uh, so-called scientific polling has been available. What does it tell us? What does it tell us is about what I was to ask you. And what does it tell us about the temper of Europe and more particularly of France right now? Remember, a France, 7,000 of whose Jewish citizens opted last year to move to and to become citizens of Israel. Well, let me speak about France first. I've talked to a lot of people now who have had a lot of contact with uh, French Jews. Uh, some of the people I've spoken with are not Jewish themselves, but have Jewish friends there. Many of them were spoken to. Some in, of their best friends are French Jews. But uh, these were people who even before, even before the uh, attack, were petrified and thinking of leaving. It's just not safe there any longer. Jimmy Carter, that unctuous uh, figure uh, who's proving to be as incompetent and uh, disgusting as an ex-president as he was as a president, said in an interview a couple of days ago that the Jews should stay in France because they're safer there than they are in Israel. To me, when he said that, I thought, there you have elite progressive mindset in a nutshell. Jimmy Carter thinks he knows better than people who live with this terror every day where they would be safer. He presumes to take the moral high ground to tell them what to do. Good Lord. Well, as one, we're going to hop around a good deal. There's so much going on here. And uh, it's both fascinating and inevitably confusing, but it does uh, stir certain large suspicions. And one other element one should put in immediately, if we're talking about ex-presidents, there's a guy in Washington who will in two years be an ex-president. And another major aspect of last week's activity is the total absence in that great march in Paris. Was it really two to three million people? I am uh, prone to believe that. I'm inclined to believe that. And we saw that phalanx in the front of world leaders uh, linked arm by arm. Uh, Netanyahu, only two or three positions away from Hollande, uh, the president of Bali in between the two of them. Uh, And, of course, the absence of any American but the bundler who became our temporary ambassador to France uh, as representing us. Obama fundraiser, right. Yeah. Uh, Incredible. Uh, Possibly insulting. It rather reminds me of the time when Netanyahu, to bring him up again, was due at the White House, and they wouldn't let him in through the front entrance, only through the side entrance, uh, past some garbage cans, and would not give him and his small group lunch on that day. Uh, Is there a built-in... Uh, ambivalence, to be polite about it, 
towards Israel and its works and ways, even though we are very supportive of them, on the part of the president. You and I are possibly in a position to conjure and conjecture about this a bit more fully in that, though we were not close associates of Barack Obama when he taught at the university that we have both been long associated with, uh, a fellow that you knew, uh, and whom I knew also, as a matter of fact, uh, was a Palestinian agent, essentially, and ran the Middle East Study Center, and was an intimate of uh, Barack Obama, and undoubtedly, had some influence upon his views, Barack Obama's views, of the Middle East situation. Views not at all disconsonant with or inconsonant with uh, those of the man, the earlier president you were talking about a moment ago, Jimmy Carter. End of peroration. <laughs> but well, with a question. I knew Rashid Khalidi since we were in college uh, together. He was a classmate. At Yale. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, when I was an assistant professor down the, down the street, but you never visited me. Uh, listeners should be careful. We could end up breaking into Yale songs very soon. But, uh, in fact, the first thing I want to say about the president is positive. I don't think for our, there is an ounce of anti-Semitism in the president. I think there is a lot of anti-Israel uh, views. I don't think he is in Was there anti-Semitism in the heart of his minister from whom he took oh, yes. close tutelage for 20 years? Oh, yes. Uh, I think that you think Rev- none of that rubs Reverend off. Wright, uh, um, the uh, uh, there's a whole lot of it. And in fact, um, is there anti-Semitism in the broad black elite, the black community of including the elite sector of the black community of Chicago? Yes, there is. And in fact, what I um, heard uh, today from someone who actually saw it was that uh, there was a poster in a coffee house fairly close to um, Hyde Park, that is in Washington Park, where they're going to uh, maybe build the Obama Library, uh, that said, we want only black art, by black artists, no Zionist art. That is, so there's, uh, I mean, you know, this is just, this is just open anti-Semitism. They didn't mean art from Israel. They meant art by any Jews. No, I'm the, not pressing the accusation of anti-Semitism. No, no. But, on Barack Obama. Uh, but I want to be but why clear. Can, how can you so, with so, so much certainty say there's not an ounce of it in his heart. Oh, I think that he's had very close, friendly, long-time relationships with lots and lots uh, of Jewish supporters. Uh, That's true, I can't certainly. tell, and these are serious people who, if they thought there was a problem there, uh, uh, they would have said so. I, I, let me say something. Hollande did not want Netanyahu to come to that. Uh, Netanyahu invited himself, and yet... Uh, Francois Hollande of France invited not only a boss, uh, himself a terrorist who wrote his Ph.D. thesis was a Holocaust denial thesis, but Cotter was there. Cotter funds Hamas and uh, Muslim Brotherhood and other terrorist organizations. So uh, the, the French don't get off of this all that easy. I would say that the uh, the president's job, the president has two fundamental parts of his job. Think of the British leaders. The British leader is Cameron. He's the prime minister. And then there's the head of state, the queen. 
In America, the president plays both roles. So when Ronald Reagan goes to make the speech after uh, the Challenger uh, disaster, he's really acting uh, in the role of the king or queen. What we were looking for in Paris was the symbolic representation of America at a crucial civilization point. And this was not an oversight. This was policy. Well, I wonder. Here, uh, the difference between you and me shows up in terms of our separate disciplines. You are a political scientist. I am, I fear, and apologetically, a psychologist. And uh, let me return to the question of the personality of and the attitudes Mm -hmm. of Barack Obama. In Mm -hmm. fact, I don't, for the moment, think him to be anti-Semitic, nor probably was he ever, Mm -hmm. though he comes from a surround in this town of Chicago where that uh, tends to flourish in the black community. We must remember that the base— increasingly on the left in America. And on the left generally, including even Jewish—some Jewish professors at the University of Chicago. But let me go on with my basic point. I don't think that Barack Obama is acting anti-Semitically. To the contrary, he's president of the United States. He is acting— in this, as he has in so many other earlier instances, with a kind of a distance, a kind of a, if not a condescension, at least uh, a, a, a declared uh, withdrawal from any investment or involvement in the larger affairs of the world. It's almost as if he's saying, this stuff doesn't really matter to me. Uh, it isn't the golf that matters. It is a coolness that matters. And it's also a sense that America has been too much in the world and should withdraw. Well, there's a lot to that. I would just say that his withdrawal is very selective. When Nelson Mandela died, President Obama went there, as he should have, because Nelson Mandela was a world historical figure who played a critical role in the transition from apartheid South Africa into what has, at least for a time, been a sort of semi-democratic South Africa. Uh, and uh, when uh, things happen in Ferguson, Missouri, or things happen to his friend uh, Skip Gates at Harvard or something like that, he's right on the case. When he says when, when, uh, when there's a shooting in a gated community in Florida, he's speaking out. He has not done anything like those things here. And I would liken it to the failure of uh, the United States to send a senior representative when the great Margaret Thatcher died. This was a deliberate choice, right? This was not, this was, he, it was rather like when he sent back the bust of Winston Churchill from the uh, loan to him as a, a loan to Bush before him as a, an from act the, of friendship. Sent it back from the Oval Office. I mean. That's right. Now, it's fine that he put in the bust of Martin Luther King. I think that that's perfectly appropriate. But sending back the bust of Churchill, I asked some of my friends who were, uh, and not going to Thatcher's funeral, I, I asked some of my friends who were Obama supporters, and especially foreign policy people, I said, can you name two countries who are our friends, who are closer to the United States now than they were when he took office? 
I haven't heard. Now, you could conceivably say that Japan might be on the grounds that a rising China has threatened them and and they came to the United States and the United States responded in a positive way. And it may be that Australia, for the same reasons, is a bit closer. It's possible. But it's hard to find. It's hard to find allies who we have a better relationship with. It's, it seems to me that countries like France, Germany, Germany is furious at the United States for spying on uh, Angela Merkel uh, for uh, a whole series of things. Um, the, the Brits seem to have a good working relationship now, but it's been very rough. And, and in effect, what you see is the American intellectual left view that these represent old, white, imperialist, rich, capitalist states that have been our friends for the wrong reasons. Now, I would ask ask you, uh, Charles, to do this as well. Put into all of this complex uh, scene that we've been describing, and there are so many elements we haven't yet even mentioned, put in something that goes way back just about six years ago, namely the Cairo speech. Yeah. What does that? How does that help to illumine the present moment? I think the president came into office with a strategy based on an assessment of what had gone wrong in the Bush years. I think that his view was that we were spending too much time and effort abroad, that we were spending too much money abroad, which could be better devoted to U.S. domestic social projects, and that we were too militaristic and unilateral. All those are quite plausible. He also thought that Bush's kind of cowboy attitude, as, as I think Obama thought of it, uh, had alienated uh, adversaries needlessly and made opposition much more likely. And that he, by changing both policy and personality, could uh, realign the United States with some of the major adversaries uh, as uh, that out in the world when he took office. Those were primarily uh, Russia and Iran, maybe Syria, maybe Venezuela. Uh, you can see the remnants of that policy toward Cuba. Um, I don't know that he held out much hope one way or the other about North Korea, but certainly with Russia and Iran, he did. And what did he do? He went out and uh, across the Muslim world, to go to your Cairo point, he made a point of making the speech in Cairo and, in effect, he did a number of other things. He flew right over Israel without stopping. He went to other Arab and Muslim states. So he was showing, he was giving the back of his hand uh, to Israel. As he, he has done rather often. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't miss the point. And he's um, uh, insults large and small. And he... Um, he has um, – and then when there was an uprising in Iran, he said nothing in 2009, and then – An uprising over a fake or a stolen election. Right. Uh, e- exactly. And these were people who were demanding a more open political system. The president said nothing for several days and then spoke very respectfully to what he called the Islamic Republic of Iran. He had made the decision – 
that he was not going to support that uprising for whatever reason. He may have thought it would fail. He may have thought that if it succeeded, it would lead to chaos. I have no idea. We still don't know. But he he made his peace with the Iranian uh, mullahs. He uh, as soon as there was an uprising, however, in Egypt against our uh, longtime ally, Hosni Mubarak, he immediately took the side of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, And further, he opposed right. the effort by the military to push the Muslim Brotherhood aside. Uh, he really, once the Muslim Brotherhood was toppled from power by General Sisi and his associates, That's correct. he... Uh, sort of condemn that. Right. And he is still condemning it in the sense that we have not renewed all of our military aid and so forth. He went in uh, kind of reluctantly, but still went in and overthrew uh, uh, Gaddafi. Right. I mean, you know, he supported that on the grounds that a hundred thousand that a thousand people might be be killed. Um and he uh, drew a line in Syria, which, as we all know, uh, was uh, was uh, a misstatement and, and eroded American credibility. Now, what you can ask about those policies, and I think you can ask also about the Russian reset, is – which involved a lot of unilateral concessions. In the case of Russia, we did a number of things for Russia. They did nothing for us, right? These were generous offers. You could say, okay, you try those things out. Now we can say after, you know, we could have said after three or four years, and we can certainly say after six years, how's that working out for you? And the answer is there has been no improvement in any of these bilateral relationships. And yet, there has been no change in the fundamental policy of the Obama administration. Indeed, there's not been an acknowledgement that they've made even anything like strategic errors. You know that I've been behind a microphone for many, many years, and there are certain uh, quotations that one finds oneself falling back upon, and even even when you think you've used them too often, and you wish you wouldn't have said it yet once again. But I can't resist at this moment to do it yet once again. One of my favorite quotations. It comes from baseball, but it really applies to politics. Casey Stengel, uh, on a day when the, the, <laughs> I while love he, this quote, while he's managing. Uh, Oh, the Mets. The Mets the, in New York. The early Mets. And they've lost terrible. again. And as he's going off the field that day, his famous words are, don't nobody here know how to play this game? Do they know in Washington how to play this game? I think that they are beset by two kinds of problems. One is, I think that the president... Uh, one is situated in the president himself. I think that he has uh, the kind of views of Henry Wallace kind of, or, or Neville Chamberlain. It's kind of can't we make can't we appease our adversaries and won't that satisfy their legitimate demands and that will create peace in our time. And I think he combines that general kind of perspective 
with a personal rigidity that reminds me of Woodrow Wilson. That is, he doesn't want to take advice from anybody. He, he's just very rigid. But I don't where? Th- but where is the foreign policy establishment? So that's foreign the policy next- isn't made only by a president, even if he tends to be a president who grabs executive control uh, on functions that belong properly to the Congress, which is another matter that we might discuss so that later brings on. Me to item but where's two. the State Department? That brings me to item two. He is absolutely surrounded by second-raters. Oh? Um, the first uh, administration, when he began, he had some fairly good people in there. He had uh, Mrs. Clinton as Secretary of State. He had Gates at defense, and Gates was a very competent yep. guy. Clinton didn't work out nearly as well as people had hoped, but there was every reason to think that she would be a serious person, and she was not entirely indebted to uh, President Obama for her career, right? And she had a future beyond him. Um, uh, But what we ended up with over time, and then we had, but we didn't have anybody who was a strategic thinker. What we have had over time, and it's been very clear, the White House has centralized virtually all foreign policy making there, and yet the foreign policy team are mostly political hacks. They're not even experienced foreign policy hands. They're not the experienced people. A lot of them were just old political hacks who were uh, very much, in a way, like the the ambassador to France, uh, who was a bundler. These were political people. I can't resist being somewhat gossipy. Um, in his office when he was senator, uh, as he was planning to run for the presidency, uh, there was a young woman who had won the Pulitzer Prize for uh, her reportorial work, Samantha Power. Uh, and she was there as a foreign policy advisor. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, her role was not commonly and widely known uh, even to other journalists, or at least it wasn't advertised, but she was there. She is now, of course, our ambassador to the United Nations, and she's now married to yet another University of Chicago, of Chicago former colleague. Cass Sunstein. Uh, Cass Sunstein. Who is a professor at Harvard Law School. And who was, for quite academic. a while, one of the czars appointed Regulatory czar. by Obama. Yep. And... Uh, Played a very large role. Right. Um, I talked to, I've met Samantha Power. I had her on the old radio program a number of times. Um, our mutual friend, Joe Morris, wiped up the floor, or wiped up the studio with Samantha Power one night, in that he knew so much more than she did. Uh, she struck poses and was leftish liberal, mm-hmm. uh, but um, isolationist also, to be sure. And uh, Joe Morris, who's a good, solid, Republican foreign policy expert and expert on everything else just had her uh, in his total command. Uh, She simply didn't know the facts. In fact, that night she was on the phone during the commercial breaks talking to, of all people, her inamorata and and husband-to-be. Uh, Cass Sunstein. I'm maybe saying too much and being rather gossipy, but I get a feeling that people are floundering. They are. I, I would say that actually Samantha Power may be one of the people who's uh, most knowledgeable and spent most of her career dealing with international events. Uh, there is a problem. She wrote about them. Yes. She. Uh, 
she represents, and there have been some very good uh, people there. My friend Anne Marie Slaughter uh, was a senior counselor in the State Department, head of policy planning uh, there uh, during the Clinton years. There is a kind of contradiction in their policy. There, these are universal human rights people. Right. They believe in America. They believe that certain values are universal and they believe that America should step in to support those values. Gee, that sounds like Jimmy Carter again, doesn't it? But but they operate in a murky world in which uh, the left is very much come home America, as it has been since George McGovern. And all cultures are equal. And who is to say our values are any better? Yes, we don't like genital mutilation. but And yes, we think women should drive cars. But who are we to say that the Saudis should behave differently from what they do? And uh, so I find these people are caught between a rock and a hard place. That's rather like the militant American feminist response to... Um to the misuse of women in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. Uh, They can condemn everything in our country, but they can't condemn them for uh, gross violation of the human rights and the human decency of ordinary women. Well, I'll tell you where you see the most sickening display of this actually on the left. is something that your listeners may not have even heard of called pinkwashing. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah. Pinkwashing is a version of whitewashing. So here's the problem that that uh, gay and lesbian activists face. Because they're on the left, they naturally, I say naturally in air quotes, uh, support the Palestinians, hate the Israelis, right? But all across the Muslim world, and certainly it's true in the Palestinian Authority and even worse in Gaza, anybody who would uh, openly say that they were gay or date or hold hands walking down Could the street. Hang. Be beheaded, hanged, all the rest. They hang, re- they hang them literally in yeah. Iran right now. Really, absolutely. Uh, and in Israel, uh, it is the most receptive place in the entire Middle East to gays. The only place that comes close might be during peaceful periods, parts of Lebanon, parts of Beirut. And, uh, I mean, I'm not saying that things are perfect. In in Israel on this, there are uh, um, Orthodox uh, uh, Jews who don't like this at all, remove women from pictures and so forth, uh, don't want to see gay marriage and so forth. Nevertheless, there is a lot of tolerance, uh, as there is in all Western civilized societies. So what do gays, how did the gays resolve what you, Mr. Psychologist, would call cognitive dissonance? Well, their answer is what they call pinkwashing. The Israelis must be behaving well toward gays in order to confuse and perplex and mask from the rest of the world how awful they really are on everything. Right. And they call that pinkwashing because it's a it's a version of whitewashing. I just find this bizarre. It's part of uh, of a concatenation of an, uh, uh, an assembly of bizarre items and bizarre uh, streams in history 
uh, all of which converge to the present moment. So who they, brings them in? Who brings them to campus? Students for Justice in Palestine. They sure. ship them all around the country because hate Israel all the time. Well, let's come to hate Israel. And let's come as well to the matter that interests you a great deal, that interests me a great deal. We're both kind of good Jewish boys, uh, though we're both somewhat superannuated as Jewish boys. And that is anti-Semitism as the possibly ingrained engram which underlies, uh, some people argue, and I know you have argued this in print, underlies anti-Zionism and anti-Israelism. Are you convinced by now that there is a substrate of anti-Semitic sentiment which goes with the Western civilization? It rises, it falls, but it's there as an historic resource or as an historic conditioned reflex, and that it has now been very significantly stirred, stirred in part by the accusations and the anger and the rage of uh, the Arab world, stirred in part by the damage that Arab terrorist uh, uh, Muslim extremist terrorists have done in the Western world, but done because their ultimate animus is against Israel, as that is perceived by ordinary French citizens, ordinary German citizens, ordinary English citizens. And is that also stirring in America? The statement years ago by one or another of the neoconservatives about Jews, they used to want, uh, rather about Christians, they used to want to kill us, now they want to marry us, uh, that may temporarily be undone by a new wave of distance towards Jews or uh, ambivalence towards Jews, which is increasingly voiced, experienced, and even pronounced overtly uh, at some of the universities by the leftist professors and by the large assembly of uh, demonstrative exhibitionist temporarily leftist students. I would draw a sharp distinction uh, two sharp distinctions before we sort of uh, get into the heart of this. The first is that I think that you can be deeply opposed to Israeli policies without being anti-Semitic. I do not think, however, you uh, can be opposed to the existence of the state of Israel mm-hmm. and uh, still be anything but an anti-Semite. I think if you want to... Can re- you be anti Can you be indirectly and, uh, and in a veiled way anti-Semite if what you really advocate is a single nation with a full reunification of the Palestinians into Israeli life, knowing that the demographic consequences, a, uh, a Muslim majority in 20 or 30 years... I think if you think... If, if your goal is to extinguish the possibility of a Jewish state, yeah. you could be anti-Semitic or you could just be such a profound secularist that you don't believe you, uh, uh, virtually all the left hates re- both religion and nationalism. So they are both cosmopolitan and, and atheistic, and they don't, and Israel represents two of the things they don't like a Jewish state and a nationalist state. They are not willing to make the same claims against, say, Saudi Arabia and so forth. I think because they romanticize the noble savage. I think they don't actually think that across the Middle East, 
these are not part of Western civilization, and they don't rank with us. They there's a soft what what George W. Bush used to call the uh, the soft the soft bigotry of low expectations. Or is it possible, quite to the contrary, that people like me and maybe even like you, and in general intellectuals and intellectoids uh, of conservative persuasion, mm-hmm. are um, simply getting a little paranoid and seeing anti-Israelism or opposition to Israeli policy, whether with regard to Palestinians or with regard to um, many other undertakings, seeing opposition to that as anti-Semitism when it is, in truth, just criticism of a rather active and significant and, and assertive government off in the Middle East, where it is capable of profiting itself while doing while stirring the pot more and more in a way that produces general disorder in surrounding nations. Right. Uh, Are we possibly being paranoid? Oh, you might be. Uh, Not me. Although I did notice people watching me. The, um, (laughs) the, I think that, uh, here's where I draw a second distinction. I think that- You do know the microphones are on. (laughs) (laughs) This is being recorded for posterity. The uh, I draw a sharp distinction between U.S. Canada on the one hand and what's going on in Europe on the other. Yeah. Uh, the um, there is a deep-seated anti-Semitism that never really died out in uh, Europe among intellectuals, but also um, on the right in Europe on the social mm-hmm. right. That really doesn't exist except in very small, extreme, uh, sort of, they're in the mountains in Idaho in a little compound. Nobody was represented by the third party in French national life over the last 30 or 40 years, namely the National Front, as led by Jean Le Pen and I'll now come by to his them daughter. in a second. But, and they were overtly anti Semitic. Grew, I grew up. Uh, in an area where there were uh, Ku Klux Klan. And uh, they hated Jews right after hating blacks. I mean, there were uh, uh, machine gun assaults on Jews and so forth. So I'm aware that there have been uh, those This was down in deepest deepest Mississippi. Yeah. I'll I'll tell you, you, where you see the movement really in both the United States and in Europe is a movement of left intellectuals plus extremely active uh, Muslims on campus and elsewhere. And the but the level in Paris two or three weeks ago, well before this, you had people going through the streets shouting, breaking windows, Kristallnacht, and shouting Jews to the gas chamber. Now, I don't, I, I, those are, those were Muslims. Uh, there may be some on the right who agree with it. Uh, remember, Israel, the, the formative idea for Israel began in France, Right. It began during the Dreyfus trial at the end of the 19th century, which was a trumped up, known to be false accusation <clears throat> against a French officer who happened to be Jewish. Very few officers were. And the French right coalesced uh, around uh, around uh, the hatred of Jews. Now, 
the reason I want to come back to France, the reason that um, the French prime minister, not Hollande, but Valls, said that uh, if the Jews leave France, we will have lost the French Revolution, the French project, was precisely this idea that everybody in <laughs> France could be a Frenchman or Frenchwoman. You, uh, the religion was private, but if you start, and that Jews could participate, Muslims could participate, Catholics p- could participate, but the Catholics couldn't run the schools and so forth. That was the 19th century project called uh, Les Cité. Now, what's happened is that all over France, there are no go zones. Uh, the French call them dish cities. These are people who have uh, satellite dishes, watch only Arabic television, live in areas governed by Sharia law. Gay people couldn't walk through those streets any more than they could walk through the streets of uh, Baghdad or the streets of Cairo or the streets of Jeddah. And the French have a possibility, have to confront, and I believe all the Europeans have to confront, the failure of their basic idea, which was this, Milt. The idea was that if you moved to France, you moved to Denmark, you moved to the Netherlands, you moved to... You become French or you become Danish. You became those things because you wanted to. You learned the language. You accepted. What's an accepted thing? It's an accepted part of the social compact in these countries that Jews are full participants. Gays can be full participants. The Muslims have not accepted any of that. Well, we uh, the, we come to so many issues that have been provoking us and and befuddling us and obsessing us for the last three, two or three decades. And there is that basic question of whether there's something different, truly different about Islam, whether it is not just another one of the five or seven great religions of the world, uh, but rather whether it makes demands upon its participants which are irreconcilable with significant culture change, with significant uh, adaptation or assimilation to a Western model. Yes, to be sure, you find uh, Muslim members of the British Parliament and I suppose of the Chamber of Deputies, for all I know, in Paris. But basically, uh, French Islam, Mm -hmm. which is one-tenth of the total population of France— one out of ten French persons. This is, is striking because is America. It, it's like one percent in America. It's one, one or two percent. Right. There, it is ten percent, and there is the question of whether they are a permanent, uh, uh, permanent Islamic island in Europe, and furthermore, whether that island will expand, if only on grounds of demographic reality. And and successive generations are not blending in. These terrorists were not people who were born in North Africa. No, they're unemployed young Frenchmen. 
That's correct. Yeah. So that tells you that unlike the first, the people who come across the American border from Mexico legally or illegally, those people want to become American. They, they become American. You are one of the five great American political scientists. I will not name the other four. Another one who was certainly in that category and was one of the three great American political scientists until his demise uh, was uh, at Harvard uh, and... Uh, I think uh, you probably knew him personally. He was the author of the book, The Clash of Civilizations, uh, Sam Huntington. And one remembers that Sam's uh, ultimate conclusion after that very significant and well-detailed, well-argued, historically-based book was that the West faces two great challenges in the coming century, that being the 21st century into which we are fully launched. One would be a clash of the civilization of the West and Asia, as led by China, and the other possibility was the clash between the West viewed as Christendom or its remnant uh, as against the Muslim majority emerge, the, the Muslim uh, multitude emerging in the world and becoming increasingly prominent and prominently visible even in Europe at the time that Sam Huntington wrote that book close to 20 years ago. Are we in fact viewing a clash of civilizations? I think Many argue that no, we are not. They, I think our adversaries think that we are. Yeah. By the way, I think in Asia we confront China, but not a clash of civilizations. That is, we confront a nation state which has a lot of powerful capabilities and has a deep culture and so forth. And Let's has go between to one fifth to one fifth, so between one fifth to one fourth of the total human population. Right. I mean, it's very big, but I mean, it's the question. He was trying to say that there were these civilizational movements, which I think you can see in the in the Muslim world. I, I think that this is a crucial question, and I think that that's the reason that what I was talking about before about the successful integration of uh, these uh, Muslim populations very important. The the thing I would say about uh, the religion, first of all, I would say our president, and this goes for both Bush and Obama, should stop being the theologian in chief and telling me what Islam means. They don't know. And even if they did, it's not their job or constitutionally appropriate as a political officer of the United States to explain the tenets of any religion. Well, are they really amateur theologians, or rather, are they politically constrained to uh, say publicly when required or when they require it of themselves, they can, that, that Islam is, quote, a religion of peace. They can say that most Muslims are peaceful and draw upon their religion in deep ways to support that. But uh, the president, even if he were a trained theologian, should not be telling us what, the, uh, what any religion tells me. He should take this opportunity to shut up. Now, the problem that the um, that uh, Islam has compared to the West, you often hear about the Crusades and this and that. The the West has undergone at least three important movements, none of which happened in the Muslim world, and one or two of, one or two of which didn't happen in the Orthodox Christian world. 
The first is the investiture crisis, which meant, uh, which is a long, drawn out, I'm just using that as a shorthand, but it means that the king and the pope are separate. There's not one unified theocratic ruler. But in Iran, in the caliphate, and all the rest, that's precisely what there was. And that never happened, uh, by the way, in uh, Orthodox uh, Christianity. Uh, uh, but what that means is that political, or, uh, political opposition is very easily considered apostasy because you're going against what God says and what God's chief interpreter says. The second thing is there was no reformation. There, there are, is a split, but there was no uh, movement that led to this very uh, decentralized notion of individuals who, uh, on their own, uh, uh, read uh, the text, make their own interpretation, and can't be uh, called out by others. But the final point is there has been no enlightenment. There was no the, the, the major movement in the West that was called the Enlightenment that was a deep questioning of all of these issues. Uh, look at what's happened in Saudi Arabia last week, right? Somebody criticized the religious police who go around and, you know, do all sorts of things to people on the street. They are, they're a public body to enforce religious law. This person criticized them. He's receiving 1,000 lashes in segments, right, designed to sort of keep him just barely alive, but just thrashed. So that's what the Enlightenment was against. If Islam doesn't confront this, ask yourself, are there any leaders, any leaders in this vast uh, organization of Islamic states, 57 states plus Palestine, who would have felt comfortable marching through the streets of Paris with a sign that said, Je suis juif. I don't think there's a one. And I don't think we can overcome this deep crisis until we both understand that problem, until our president is willing to call it out, which he won't. He won't say it. It's as if the words cannot pass his lips. Well, our president and confront is a- it. Our president is not unique in that. If you look at all of the Western leaders, whether Angela Merkel or the British Prime Minister or Hollande in France, they all manage, whenever speaking somewhat critically of, uh, of jihadist terrorism, they all manage to say, but, of course, uh, they deviate from the true nature of Islam. Islam is, as we know, a religion of peace. That's uh, de rigueur. It's required if only, I don't know why, maybe essentially to uh, placate your left. But it's there as uh, a cliche which is uttered as part of the, the basic stance. Just remember, first of all, they have no, uh, how do they know? Secondly, not on what authority right? do they speak? And third, why don't they follow the greatest of the Western leaders now, which is Stephen Harper of Canada? And uh-huh. actually just speak out clearly, begin to develop policies that deal with this, and confront it. But I don't see anything like that. All I see is the kind of conversation that's led by the New York Times that won't 
uh, that won't deal with these issues and fears most of all the backlash, which I think their, their suppression of a genuine discourse, which should not be anti-Muslim any more than it should be anti-Semitic. The suppression of that conversation will lead to more problems rather than letting us solve them. Maybe it is in the nature of being a politician that one forgets or never takes seriously uh, the classic utterance by Le Duc de la Rochefoucauld, mm-hmm. who said, L'hypocrisie est l'hommage que le vice rend à la vertu. Hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. Hypocrisy is part of the basic equipment, at least public hypocrisy, is part of the basic equipment of high politicians, is it not? Well, we must have very virtuous politicians these days. It's pretty hard to come by. (laughs) They're paying a lot of homage. Yes. They're paying a lot of homage. Uh, I think that we are not well served. Uh, I don't see how you can develop policies which have to not just be foreign policies of bombing by drones, but a whole grand strategy abroad and a domestic strategy if these people are coming out of France or coming out of uh, suburbs in Minneapolis, unless you're willing to look square in the eye where the problem is and what it is. As we're about to close time being what it is. I must ask you, as a young man, <clears throat> were you something like a linearist? Uh, that is, did you believe in the ascending linear, in the linear ascent of mankind and of collective life, so that ultimately uh, we, uh, the, ultimately all would be put as, all fractiousness and opposition and low-mindedness would be put aside, and we would enter the sunlit uplands of universal peace, harmony, goodwill, and common understanding. Ain't gonna study war no more. Ain't gonna study war Ain't gonna no study more. Ain't gonna study war no more. No, I, I guess what I would say— You no longer see the world that way, surely. No, uh, but I, I have always been and still am an American optimist. Really? Yeah, I— uh, And I think part of that is a technological optimism, although even there, what we see is the use of technology by really bad guys to do really awful things. I mean, when you think of good things like a driverless car, well, you could stuff it full of explosives and ride it right into the Tribune Tower. You know, so you uh, bad guys can exploit these things. Uh, Airplanes get us everywhere quickly, but they took down the Twin Towers. So I'm a technological optimist and so forth. But I think it's harder to be that if you're knowledgeable about the 20th century. The 20th century was the most lethal century in human history. Oh, God, yes. And what we have now is increasing weapons of lethality in the hands of people who have no Restraint. It was Rudolf and Rommel. And no deterrence. Rudolf Rommel, political scientist, University of Hawaii. A great uh, Who does um, yeah. uh, the full study of genocide and what he calls democide, yeah. whose estimate is that in the 20th century, yeah. uh, about 180 million to 190 million civilians, plain people, not men in uniform, mm-hmm. were killed as a matter of state, were killed by states or by organizations aspiring to be states. But essentially, the destruction of civilians as a matter of policy. By the Nazis, by Stalin, and by Mao, 
preeminent among them. Yeah, by Pol Pot and so and on. Pol Pot. And on. Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. Idi Amin. And, uh, and there are qualities of true believer. I mean, uh, yeah. and in fact, uh, you know, so I have more mixed view. I don't think of it as a Manichian struggle between good and evil. But boy, today it sure looks that way, doesn't it, Mel? It does not look linear. It does not. And with that, we close with deep thanks uh, to uh, an old and treasured friend, Charles Lipson, who I didn't say often enough, is professor of political science, former chairman of that department, a much published author, a number of books to his credit, uh, at the University of Chicago. Charles, thank you so much.